2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Okay, would you stand with me? And I'm going to read, just read two verses while we stand out of just respect for God's word. And uh, if you'd follow along as I read. Whatever we do, it is because Christ's love controls us. I want you to think about that. Whatever we do, it is because Christ's love controls us. Some other translations say compels us or constrains us. Since we believe that Christ died for everyone, we also believe that we have all died to the old life we used to live. He died, meaning Christ, for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live to please themselves. Instead, they will live to please Christ who died and was raised for them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning what it means that your love would compel us, would constrain us, would control us. Father, I pray that in these few minutes as we look through your word that you would open our eyes afresh to your love to us in Jesus. Amen. You may sit down. I think my favorite description of being in love is in the movie Bambi. Twitter pated. Isn't that a great description of being in love? Twitter pated. But we are far too easily Twitter pated. We far too easily are in love. So I'm going to make a kind of a confession here and expose my soul to you all for a few minutes. It was my senior year in college. I was about ready to graduate. And, you know, so then you're out of college, and then what next? On to graduate school, and, and the chances of finding a girl, you know, were kind of diminishing, you know, once you leave the college campus and you enter the graduate world. So I had been dating a gal just a few times and um, I decided that you know probably needed to make some progress here because I was about ready to graduate we were going to separate and so I made up a plan with my roommates <laughs> I want you not to hold this against me okay I made a plan with my roommates to impress this girl so that she would fall deeply in love with me and want to marry me. <laughs> and so not too far from the college, the university campus where I was tending down in California, there was a beautiful park. 
and on the park was a, a pond. It was a beautiful setting. So my roommates went to this park ahead of myself and this girl and set up a table. <laughs> and two chairs with a tablecloth and candles and all that. This was nighttime. And then I took this girl for a walk in the park. Lo and behold, we happened upon this table with hors d'oeuvres on it, probably sparkling cider. I went to a Christian university. <laughs> and um, we said, oh, well, we might as well sit down. And so we sat down and enjoyed a wonderful time at this table served by one of my roommates who periodically would appear out of nowhere in a, <laughs> in a tuxedo to serve us. <laughs> and my wife is thinking, why didn't I ever get anything like this? <laughs> I know. Oh, well. <laughs> Actually, I did something similar upstairs in the coffee house one time for her. But she probably forgot because it wasn't that romantic. But anyway. So, periodically my, this roommate would appear out of nowhere and serve us and wait upon us. And then when we were done, we got up to go for a little stroll down by the pond. And as we were walking along the pond, and this is not a recommendation, okay? At the appropriate time, I... I, I, I looked at her and I said, I love you. After we had dated a few times and had a very romantic dinner by the pond, she was far more mature than I was and looked at me and said, boys are so silly. <laughs> and which lightened the mood wonderfully because I was feeling really uncomfortable about having to proceed with this and, and wasn't really feeling particularly in love with her, but just felt the need to get married, you know, because I was about ready to graduate from college and then what was I going to do the rest of my life? Was I in love? I wasn't in love at all. But had this like I said, this compulsion, this compelling that somehow I had to be in love so I could get married so that I could enjoy the rest of my life. Was I captivated by her beauty, by her kindness, by her personality, by her intellect? No, I was purely captivated by this inward compulsion that somehow before I graduated, I needed to fall in love and get married. Well, thankfully, she was a lot wiser than I was, and uh, we didn't get married. And I'm wonderfully married to my wife, who I didn't, but we've done some other romantic things together, and so we've been married 30 years now, and are much more in love every day. And that's not just a statement. You know, the typical American movie that is about romance and love, I think it goes something like this. It's a pretty simple plot, although there 
obviously they have all different facets to them. This is the basic plot. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl get in bed. Love. And that's it. I mean, uh, if you haven't figured that out yet, that's, that's how they basically work. I um, just read a review as I was thinking about this movie about a movie that, that has recently come out called Going the Distance in, with Drew Barrymore and some other guy, I can't remember his name. And uh, the, the review is interesting because how the reviewer went out of their way to kind of, I think, I'm not sure it was convince themselves or convince the people that were reading the review that despite, and these are the words that were in the review, despite the raunchiness of the language and the fact that immediately after they met, they hopped in bed and, and had phone sex and everything else that they were really in love. And this was a beautiful love story. Is that love? Our, our understanding of love has, uh, has become so cheapened. Um, I mean, far from, I think, the depth of what Bambi was experiencing when Bambi was Twitter-pated with uh, Feline, the love that so many of us claim to have is so shallow. I think what it boils down to is so often is our lusts that control us. And by that I mean our desires, our fleshly desires, our, our, our sensual desires, um, our, our human desires, they control us. And so what we're going to do this morning, as my assignment this morning, is to talk about the love of God as we are over the several weeks going over attributes of God, is to give us a fresh glimpse of love, the love of God. I want to, I want to read for you a little quote here. This is a, a book I just started reading a couple of days ago, and it's, um, it's been very engaging. It's called Mission to the Headhunters. Um, this didn't take place in Bremerton, in case you were wondering. This is a story that took place in Ecuador. And uh, probably some of you have heard of the Aka Indians where five missionaries were killed in reaching out to those Indians. It was in 1955. This took place quite a while ago. Well, this missionary couple, Frank and Marie Drown, I'm sure they regretted having that last name, D-R-O-W-N. But they're 37 years living among the Shuara people, headhunting people who were known, the Shuara and the Atshuara, as fierce enemies who were just constantly going, killing one another and revenging killings and revenging those killings. And this is what, um, this is a quote that I want to read you just as we begin to, again, the point of this morning is to give us a glimpse of true love, okay? And so here, this is something that Frank says as he is reaching out, and this is just a few days after two of his best friends, Roger Udarian and Nate Saint, were both killed by the Auk Indians with three others. This is just a few days after that. Frank arrives in Atshuara territory. He's been invited there, but 
but the but the atmosphere is murderous and 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 full of fear and and there's threats of revenge and and even that they're going to kill him he arrives and he says by now i was fearful but i had worked and waited and hoped and planned for this moment if i were to turn and run and this is as he's approaching the the thatched roof house of where the chief of the Atshuar are. If I were to turn and run, the door to the Atshuara would be closed to me forever. The nearer I crept, the more Santiaku and his men danced and shouted, and this is with guns in their hands. My thoughts flashed back to the Kurare River. The picture of those bodies of my friends lying in the sand came again into my mind. But this time it gave me courage. Those men faced death and had not drawn back. They had not counted their lives dear to themselves. Was I any different from them? Did I have any more right to live than they? I thought our lives belong to God. May he be glorified in me, whether by life or by death. And as I read these words, and, I, and as I read, I've been reading the testimony of this couple's life, the words of 2 Corinthians 5, that I read a little bit earlier, verse 14, came to me. The love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me. That's the love, what I would say, the real love of God that, that we need to get a glimpse of this morning is what I want to talk about. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to look at two kind of portrayals of God's love in the Old Testament. One is the portrayal of a father's love for a child or for a son. And the other is the portrayal of a husband's wife, husband's love for his wife. And both of them, I want you, as we read these, I want, I want you to... To get a sense, as, as, we're gonna, as I'm going to highlight some of the words, of the immensity and the depth and the intensity of God's love for us in Christ. Okay? In fact, so turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. This is where we're going to start. Some of you have probably never even heard of the guy, Hosea. It's in, in, the, in the book. It is... Page 878. 878. Hosea chapter 11. There's a phrase, and I'm just going to start by picking out a phrase that has just rummaged its way around in my heart all week as I've been pondering these verses. I want you to start by looking at verse 8. Hosea 11, 8. Interestingly enough, this whole book, Hosea, it's, uh, it was words given to Hosea, a prophet by God, to declare God's love for his people. And God does it in an interesting way because most of the book is devoted to God calling Hosea to marry a woman who is a prostitute. In order to reveal his people's unfaithfulness, and yet in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God's faithful love. And so he calls Hosea 
to marry the most unlikely gal, the most unfaithful gal, to demonstrate God's faithfulness, God's love. But let's start with Hosea 11, verse 8. I want you to, I want you to get the emotion here. This is really important because so often I reduce my relationship to God way too often to just information. Like, okay, Jesus died on the cross. You know, he rose from the dead. You know, this is information I need to believe. But, but I want you to get the emotion here. If you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to, to get the depth and the intensity of God's love. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Admon Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. Isn't that amazing? That's God speaking to his unfaithful people. My heart is torn within me. Let's start at verse 1. God's love for us as a father. When Israel was a child, I loved him as a son. And I called my son out of Egypt. And this is referring back in history to the time when Israel was in Egypt and they were slaves for 400 years and then God miraculously through several plagues brought them out, plundered Egypt and formed them into a nation, brought them into the promised land and called them his people. I loved him as a son and I called my son out of Egypt but, but the more I called to him, the more he rebelled. Offering sacrifices to the image of Baal and burning incense to idols it was I who taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke of slavery from his neck, and I myself stooped to free him. Isn't that amazing? The Almighty God created the universe stooped to free an enslaved, idolatrous, rebellious people. Verse 5, But since my people refuse to return to me, they will go back to Egypt and will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through their gates and destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. And the verses I just read give an illustration of what rebelling against God and running away from God results in. And most of us know this from our own lives and the, the consequences and results of our own lives and, and, and how it's described here about Israel as God freed them from Egypt because their, their rebellious hearts went back into Egypt and ended up serving Assyrian, Babylonian and so many other countries, nations that forced them into servitude because of their rebelliousness and their abandonment of God. And that's when we come back to verse 8, and God says, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you? And most of us think that, have this perverted perception of God that, that when we do something that displeases God, that God has this attitude of, well, to hell with you. Or that when something's going wrong in our lives, it's because God is out to punish us. It's not the attitude we see at all. How can I give you up? 
the consequences of our sin and our rebellion do lead to consequences, horrible consequences sometimes. But God in the midst of it, as he's letting us go and then wooing us back and disciplining us and refining us and purifying us, in his heart he's saying, how can I let you go? How can I destroy you? My heart is torn within me. Verse 9, no, I will not punish you as much as my burning anger tells me to. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. And then it ends with words of hope. Verse 10, For someday the people will follow the Lord. I will roar like a lion, and my people will return trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Flying like doves, they will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. That's a love story. That's a love story. And I just want to highlight a couple things really quickly before we move on to the next passage. I want you to notice, first of all, you know, notice where the love originates from in this little love story? It doesn't originate from the loveliness of the people that God is reaching out to. It doesn't originate because of their, because of their how eager they are to follow God. It totally, completely originates from God. It's God's love flowing out of his heart to rebellious people. Him calling them his son and adopting them and redeeming them, making them his own so that they belong to him. This love completely and totally originates from God. You notice how faithful his love here is here? He says, my people are determined to desert me. I mean, from the very beginning, when he calls them out of Egypt, he adopts them and redeems them. Immediately, it says, the more I called, the more they rebelled. And we see that if you read the story of the wandering in the wilderness of the nation of Israel. They're constantly going after other gods. They're whining and complaining and grumbling and belly aching. God, where are you? And the whole time he's there. But they're looking after, they're looking for lesser loves. <laughs> Something that will immediately satisfy or give them a good feeling. And in their rebelliousness, they abandon God. But he is faithful. All the way to the end, where in verses 10 and 11, he ends by saying, I will bring them home again. God's faithful love. Repeated throughout the Psalms is a wonderful phrase. In fact, Psalm 136 is devoted to the repetition of this phrase about two dozen times. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love is forever. His faithful love is forever. And we see that here, don't we? God's faithful love. We see the purposefulness of his love in adopting and redeeming and nurturing and disciplining. Ultimately, the whole point is to, to bring them home again, to make them his own forever. And we could talk about the redemptiveness of his love, the nurturing of his love. But to me, what I want you to get again from this passage is the intensely personal nature of God's love. You get that? My heart is torn within me. I love the phrase, I can't remember who it was, it, Curtis that 
share, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God rescues us because he delights in us. Okay, turn with me to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. And we move from, we move from the, the portrayal of Israel as a God as a father, adopting and redeeming and, and wooing Israel, his people as his son, to a picture of God as a husband bringing to himself a wife. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Page 813 in, in the book. Page 813. Now, some of this is um, kind of X-rated, so um, just, I'm just warning you, okay? It's, some, of it, it's kind of, it's, some of it's pretty, pretty frank as it talks about this relationship between God and his people. Another message came to me, Ezekiel, from the Lord. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her loathsome sins. Give her this message from the sovereign Lord. You are nothing but a Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. When you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was left uncut and you were neither never washed, rubbed with salt, and dressed in warm clothing. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were dumped in a field and left to die unwanted. That's the beginning of the story, the love story. The story of God reaching out and making a people his own. Was it because they were a people that were so amazing, so wonderful, so beautiful, so mighty, so numerous? You were dumped in a field and left to die unwanted. But, God carries on, verse 6, But I came by, and I saw you there, helplessly kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, and this is God speaking, Live. And I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel. Your breasts became full and your hair grew, though you were still naked. And when I passed by and saw you again, you were old enough to be married. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness, and I declared my marriage vows. And I made a covenant with you, says the, Lord, says the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. That's a love story. A love story of the, the creator God of the universe reaching out to a, and some people that were nobodies, dumped in a field and left to die. No one cared about them, kicking about in their own blood. And God says, live. And they live. And he makes them, it's the picture of a husband and wife, makes them beautiful, clothes her, and declares his love and marries her makes a covenant with them. Verse 9, Then I bathed you, and I washed off your blood, and I rubbed fragrant oils into your skin. I gave you expensive clothing of linen and silk, beautifully embroidered and sandals made of fine leather. I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets and beautiful necklaces, a ring for your nose and earrings for your ears, and a lovely crown for your head, and so you were made beautiful with gold and silver. 
Your clothes were made of fine linen and you were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest foods, fine flour, honey, olive oil, and became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, and so you were. And your fame soon spread throughout the world on account of your beauty, because the splendor I bestowed on you perfected your beauty, says the Sovereign Lord. And so God made them to be a people that were renowned throughout the whole world. His people belonging to Him. But, verse 15, but you thought you could get along without me. So you trusted instead in your fame and beauty as if you had accomplished them yourselves. You gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. You used the lovely things I gave you to make shrines for idols where you carried out your acts of prostitution. Unbelievable. How could such a thing ever happen? You took the very jewels and gold and silver ornaments I had given you and made statues, statues of men and worshipped them, which is adultery against me. You used the beautifully embroidered clothes I gave you to cover your idols. Then you used my oil and incense to worship them. Imagine it. You set before them as a lovely sacrifice the fine flour and oil and honey I had given you, says the Sovereign Lord. And he goes on to describe how then they took their kids and they offered their kids, their children, their sons and their daughters to these idols as sacrifices. And they just offered themselves to any and everyone who would come along. They prostituted themselves. So what does God do? Flip all the way to the end of the chapter, if you would, to, chapter, to verse 59. Ezekiel 16, 59. Because by this point, human love, normal love, would say, I'm done with you. And we know that love, don't we? In the United States of America, uh, such a shallow, cheap love where we give on, up on each other so quickly. Um, in fact, the, uh, it's called so often just irreconcilable differences is what's enough to end a covenant relationship. Verse 59, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will give you what you deserve, for you have taken your solemn vows, your marriage vows lightly by breaking your covenant. Yet I will keep the covenant I made with you when you were young. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember with shame all the evil you have done. I will make your sisters, Samaria and Sodom, to be your daughters, even though they are not a part of our covenant. And I will reaffirm my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. You will remember your sins and cover your mouth in silence and shame when I forgive you of all that you have done, says the Sovereign Lord. That's love. That's love. That's real love. A love that adopts 
that reaches out to someone who is unlovely, makes them their very own, redeems them, rescues them, nurtures them, purifies them, perfects them, makes them beautiful. That's what it talks about in Ephesians 5 when it talks about biblical marriage. I mean, that's the point of a husband is that their wife, as a result of his love for her, she would become the most beautiful, amazing person, not just outwardly, but inwardly that she could be because of his love for her. That's God's love. A love that will let us go, experience the consequences of our rebellion, will discipline, but will draw us back, will woe us back to become beautiful in His sight. That's real love. If you turn to one more verse as we kind of come to an end here, the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4. As we get a culminating description of God's love. 1 John 4, page 1239 in this Bible. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. First John 4, 9 and 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It is not that we loved God, and we saw that from the two little portrayals in the Old Testament. It wasn't that we loved him. But that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's love. And that's the culmination of the story that starts in the Old Testament with God and his love reaching out to Israel to make them a people and to draw them to them himself, but in their rebelliousness, looking everywhere else for lovers, but to the one who really loved. The end of the story is that through that nation came the most beautiful demonstration of God's love and that was the promised Messiah Jesus who came through the nation of Israel to show us real love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son gave his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins do you know that love this morning? The most famous verse in the Bible probably is John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his only son. Why did he do that? What is this love that God has for a people that are so rebellious that he, that he would even give his own son? Why did he do that? Well, Two verses before, we get, it, we, get, we get the explanation. I'm going to read it for you. You don't have to turn there. John 3. Listen to this. Just as Moses lifted up 
the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Just as Moses lifted up a serpent, a snake on a pole in the wilderness, so Jesus is said needed to be lifted up so that anyone who looks to him and believes in him, like the people of Israel back in that day looked to that servant, would believe and be saved. The reason the snake was lifted up in the wilderness way back then was because the people were grumbling and complaining and God said, I've had enough of you and he sent snakes. And the snakes bit people and the people, because of their grumbling and complaining and rebelliousness, bit by snakes, died. And Moses cried out to the Lord and said, what do we do? And God says, put, a, put, a, put one of those snakes, but make a snake out of bronze and put it on the pole so that if somebody looks to the snake that's on the pole, they'll live. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that was biting them and killing them, if they would look at it, they would live. And so Jesus said in the same way that that snake was put on the pole, so I must be lifted up on a pole, a cross, so that anyone who looks to me will live. Isn't that an interesting parallel? It shows us the depths of God's love. Because Jesus came and was sinless. He was the Son of God. He was God himself who came to earth to rescue us and redeem us and, and make us his own after we'd rebelled against him. And there he, there he hangs on the cross like the snake. A picture of what's killing us because as he hung there, he hung there bearing our sin, what's killing us what's separating us from God and, and sending us to an eternity away from God. He hung there as sin for us so that looking to him, hanging there as sin for us, the love of God manifested in its completeness in Christ, we would look and be saved as we believe that he was hanging there as sin for us. That's real love. Not that we love God and we can't, we can't love, but that he loved us and sent his only son to hang as sin for us on the cross. So that believing that he was hanging there as our sin offering, we could be saved. We could be and know his love. Amazing love, there's a little chorus that we sing. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? That's love that my God would die for me. So I want to ask, end by asking two questions. The first one, and I'm speaking as I ask this question, to those of you that um, claim to belong to Jesus, you would consider yourself a child of God. Going back to 2 Corinthians 5, the question is, what love is it that compels you? Is it the love of Christ? 
Does the love of Christ compel you? Are your eyes so fixated and so captive, so twitterpated by Jesus that that love, the love of God himself dying on the cross, that you could belong to him, be his own, be his heir, be beautiful for eternity? Does that love captivate you? Or are we so much like the description of the people of Israel in Hosea and, and Ezekiel where as he loves us, we just keep rebelling. We just keep running after other loves. Is that where, where you are this morning? Do you really, are you just running after other loves? Other things to captivate your desires? Do you see his love? I just, I just ask you this morning to fix your eyes afresh on Jesus to be captivated by the love of the greatest lover who's ever loved. Became sin for you so that you could be free. Belong to him. What love is it that compels you? I, I think so many of us, we're compelled by a love for comfort. <laughs> a, a love for people to think good of us. Good reputation. There's so many loves. That I just I ask you afresh to look at the love of Jesus and be captivated by his love. The second question is, just to those of you that are here this morning, and maybe this is the first time you've heard this information, or maybe you've heard it, but it's like has never impressed you. I want to ask you this morning, don't you want this love? Aren't you tired of running after such cheap love? <laughs> love that, as I understand most quote-unquote love relationships in the United States of America, I, I call them mutual leech relationships. Just two lonely, hurting people looking to leech love from one another until you suck each other dry and then you go on and look for somebody else to leech some love from. Isn't that a pretty good description of love? I think it is, of a lot of relationships, how we just go sucking life and sucking love out of each other. But I can't, you can't suck too much love out of Jesus. <laughs> He's the eternal God of the universe who went to the cross for you and his love will never end. There's nothing it says in Romans 8 that can separate you from his love. Nothing. Aren't you about tired of running after other loves? Run to Jesus. Look to Jesus and to his love. Let's pray. Father, I think um, it's become easy for us to kind of be become numb by the word love because it's become so cheap in so many ways. To where we say, I love you, and so often when we hear the word, I love you, it just means I want to get in bed with you, or think you're pretty, or... God, I pray that you would lift up our eyes afresh to see Jesus and real love. And Father, that you would give us a longing and a compulsion to be in the greatest love relationship that we could ever be in. Open our eyes to see Jesus, I pray. To know his love and to love him in return.
Amen.